The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to The Dark Word. I am your host, Philip Fricasi, and with me today is Tim Wagner. Tim Wagner has published over 50 novels and seven collections of short stories. He's written tie-in fiction based on Supernatural, Grimm, X-Files, Alien, Doctor Who, and others. He's written novelizations for films such as Halloween Kills, Resident Evil, The Final Chapter, and Kingsman, The Golden Circle. His articles on writing have appeared in Writer's Digest, The Writer, and The Writer's Chronicle. He's the author of the acclaimed horror writing guide, Writing in the Dark, which won the Bram Stoker Award in 2021. In addition to winning multiple Stokers, Tim has been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award, the Scribe Award, and the Splatterpunk Award. In addition to writing, he's also a professor at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. As we talked about before I got on, I had to truncate your bio or I could have probably gone on for a couple more minutes because you've accomplished so much in the field and it's really impressive and, and you teach it as well, which is even equally, if not more impressive to me. So one of the things I wanted to get into was just kind of off the bat is I'd like to ask the guests for the show. I kind of just wanted to know what your first publishing experience was, your first professional publishing experience. and. And what you took from that and maybe what you learned from that initial, you know, toe dip into the publishing waters. Well, I had some stuff published in, uh, you know, like small press magazines uh, sometime in my like late 20s. But my first professional publication was in an anthology called Youngblood that came out from Zebra Books. And the conceit of the anthology was that all the stories were written by authors before their 30th birthday. Interesting. Yeah. So that's how they snuck in stuff from Stephen King and Ramsey Campbell and Edgar Allan Poe, as long as it was written right. before the 30th birthday. But everybody else, you know, we were all new writers. And uh, it was the the first kind of story I had ever written that was uh, kind of like the weird nightmare horror, surreal stuff that I often write. And, I, you know, I sent it in and got it published. And uh, it was my first professional publication. I was thrilled. It was great to be alongside, you know. Uh, even reprints, you know, from Stephen King. And I think maybe they had one from Robert Block and Ramsey Campbell. So that was great. And what was not so great about it is uh, we never got paid, any of us. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we found out. You know, nobody, I think, wanted to say anything just because it was uh, it was like our first publication for most of us, first, first significant one. And uh, I had already used it as a credential to get into like a uh, the Horror Writers Association and the Science Fiction Writers. And I'm like, I got to keep my mouth shut about that mm-hmm. or else I'll, have to, I'll get kick me out or something. So it never really bothered me too much because in the early days of social, I guess social media, there was something called the Genie Network. Uh, the General Electric put it out. It was like a computer, computer message board kind of thing. And um, 
writers who belong to CIF or HWA, we got free memberships. And so you could go in there. And since it was new, this whole idea of people getting together to talk like that, all kinds of professional writers were in there. And so even just to be like a fly on the wall while they were talking. And so I had already gotten used to the idea that there's a lot of ups and downs and, you know, a lot of unexpected heartbreak that happens in publishing, which was pretty useful, you know, in a lot of ways to at least, you know, let you know that it's not the end of the world if something bad happens. So I was never really that upset that I never got paid for it. Still, still proud of that book. Not really sure why I didn't get paid. The, the, uh, the editor passed away a while ago, so who knows, but you know, things like that happen, but it was my very first published, uh, you know, professionally published story. And uh, I couldn't think of a really ultimately overall, I can't think of a better experience for it. What was the name of the, the title of the anthology again? Yeah, it was called Young Blood. Young Blood. Yeah. Did you have a contract for the story? Yeah. Okay. So you had a contract that outlined the payment, but they just literally never, never paid you. Right. I got to wonder if King and Barker and, you know, Ramsey Campbell. Oh, I'm sure they did. Because <laughs> their lawyers would probably not put up with that sort of nonsense. But um, yeah, right. and that's a good point, right? Because you hear that a lot, you know, an, an uncomfortable amount of time is that, yeah, um, especially in the indie field, like the publisher will not pay the writers. And um, my sense is it's happening less than it used to. I think there was a lot of fly-by-night publishers, we'll call it, where mm -hmm. they would come out, they would put out a book, and then they would disappear off the face of the earth. But I think with the advent of social media, to your point, with that forum, word starts, word gets around, right? Writers talk. Yep. And I think with social media really taking off, you couldn't really get away with that as now, you know what I mean? Because you'd be, you'd be, you'd be sacrificed on the Twitter altar. Right. And everyone would know within minutes and would be, you know, down your throat. And, and I think that'd be the end of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of, uh, uh of indie publishers have kind of, you know, paved the way. Mm -hmm. And so it's easier to find out now, here's how to do it. And plus, you know, uh, the indie, a lot of indie publishers are so generous with their advice that they'll help, you know, the newcomers. So I, I, I think you're right. I think that in general, the indie press seems a lot more stable and they've got to, yeah. you know, I think a lot of the previous problems were just creative people that weren't business people, you know, starting up a publishing house and kind of hoping for the best. So. Yeah. In a way when publishing became, easier with print on demand and Amazon when, you know, I, I had a small publishing company in the early aughts of Equator. And, you know, that was back in the days when, you know, you'd have to go to a printer offset printer and you'd print a couple thousand books and you'd have to store those books. And then you'd have to find a distributor for those books. You had to ship them to some warehouse in Pennsylvania or wherever it was a thing. And it was a huge investment. And I think what happened with when print on demand kind of came around, I think a lot of People are like, oh, how, look how easy it is to publish. All I got to do is get the content and throw it up on Amazon. And um, so I think it was almost like there was like a the, sort of like a Wild West period where I think a lot of stuff came and went. But I, to your point, I think it's really stabilized now. I think the independent publishers that are around now, in my experience, are, are much pretty stable. And hopefully for new writers, the market is stabilized. But it is something for new writers to be aware of, right? Like if you're, you know, if you get offered a a contract for an anthology and it's a publisher you've never heard of, or maybe they don't have any books released, be aware, make sure you get a good contract and hopefully you'll get, you'll get paid, but something to be aware of. It does happen. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like tell any newer writers out there to worry about it so much. Just do your due diligence and, you know, ask mm -hmm. around about the publisher, you know, send somebody a DM if you don't want to ask in public. Most writers are really good about letting you know experiences like that. So. 
Yeah, and that's a really good point because I've done that myself. If you get an offer from a publisher, yeah, just uh, find out who else they've worked with and yeah, throw them a private message, um, ask about their experience. And I, yeah, I've never had a problem with that. Writers have always been very open about their experiences. And that's a really good tool that we have now with social media where you can reach out to people and say, what was your experience like? And you know, any, any concerns or red flags or whatever. What about your first, um, let's talk about your first like novel um, experience. What was your first novel sale? The first novel sale was very odd. I had collaborated on a short story with an author named Russell Davis. His byline is usually just his first initial, so it's like R. Davis. And uh, we did a, a story for an anthology about Xena the Warrior Princess. So we, nice. It's one of the few collaborations I did. It was a lot of fun. And uh, a few years later, he ended up being an editor of a startup publisher called Foggy Windows. And the idea was it was uh, supposed to be erotica for married couples. Wow. So it was very, very specific. <laughs> right. And so he said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this book, you know, publishing here or editing here at this book publisher. Do you want to do something for me? And then he told me it was erotic. And I was like, well, damn it. You know, it's not what I wanted to do. Right. And but then I thought, you know, well, to hell with it. I'm not going to, I shouldn't look down on any kind of writing. And the advance was okay. You know, it wasn't terrible. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do this. And they had like a, Four different lines, four different types of books. Like one was horror and uh, Gary Bronbeck did that one. And so he asked me to do a mystery one, to pitch him a mystery one. And I couldn't take the concept seriously. So I decided to make it a comic mystery and I called it Dying for It. It was about a husband and wife, uh, a team of private detectives whose big problem was that they couldn't keep their hands off each other while they were working on a case and they would end up getting distracted. Um, (laughs) For whatever reasons, this was a, a, a work for hire gig too. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm creating all this stuff. But I'm like, well, I also haven't published a novel yet. You know, I'd written some, right. but uh, a number of them, but hadn't had it published yet. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go ahead and do it. And it was a lot of fun, but the the company only put out five books, five or six books before it went under. But it was a good experience. As I mentioned in your bio, you started writing tie-ins. And how did you get into, and I've, even, I've, I've asked you about this in the past because I've been curious as a writer, mm-hmm. how did you get into that field of writing? When I mean by, by tie-ins, for those who may not know, for like a TV show like Supernatural, they'll do like a spinoff kind of story, right? That's a novel. And um, whereas a novelization is you're taking the, tell me if I'm wrong, Tim, you're taking the, the basically the, uh, the screenplay story and adapting it to a novel. Is that pretty much right? Yeah, for novelization, but you, they also have ones that are the, the characters are like the characters from Supernatural, but you make up the whole adventure. So that's a tie-in. Yeah, they're all they're all tie-ins, but I guess there's like right. oh, I novelization see. tie-ins and maybe like original adventure with pre-made characters tie-ins. I guess. Oh, interesting. How did you get into that field of doing that kind of work? I've seen a lot of writers doing it and doing it successfully. I, uh, off the top of my head, Tim Levin comes to mind. Uh, Christopher Golden mm-hmm. comes to mind. How did, uh, how did you get into that field for writers who might be interested in that sort of a thing? Yeah, for me, it was, you know, when I, uh, I'm 58. So when I was a kid, we didn't even have yet, you know, VCRs. So, you know, if you wanted to see a movie or be, uh, uh, or you wanted to like experience a TV show that was off the air, you know, tie-ins are about the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would read maybe Star Trek books or um, Dungeons and Dragons books and things like that along in the novelizations too. 
because those were cool because you got extra scenes that weren't, you know, in the movie itself right. and written from, written from a deeper perspective. You get an idea of how characters would think and stuff. So I'd read that along with original things. And this, as time would go by, you know, and I started going to in my late twenties to science fiction conventions to kind of learn, to learn from writers and even get a chance to talk to writers. There would just be writers there who had done tie-ins and they talk about it and there'd be panels on it. And uh, so I just started getting interested in it and eventually just, you know, thinking it would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. When I started off in college, I went to be an acting major and eventually decided I loved writing so much more. I switched over to that. But tie-ins always struck me as kind of similar to acting and that you're given a set of circumstances to work with, to be creative as opposed to creating them from the ground up. It just stretches a different you know, sure. set of muscles. So, and then I just kind of kept, you know, either uh, uh, inquiring at cons, you know, I'd go up to an editor and say, you know, do you got any, anything I might be able to, you know, send a proposal for, or, um, you know, sending in like, if there's an open call for something. Uh, I think the very first one that I did was for uh, the, the game company, White Wolf. They were doing a lot of tie-ins back uh, probably about like 20 years ago or so, 22 years ago. And uh, I just happened, I'd done a short story for one of their anthologies. And I can't remember if I just wrote them, a, you know, an email and said, hey, do you got anything going on? Or they actually had like open submissions, but I managed to get a contract from them. And that just kind of kept on going from there. Right. And then you recently did, I think your most recent one, if I'm correct, is you just did Halloween Kills, right? The one, the the Blumhouse movie that came out last year. Yep. Yeah. And I got one coming out in uh, late April based on Zombie Side Invader, which is a card game. Oh, cool. So when you work on the movie side, because you've done a few movie novelizations, right. is that something where they send you the screenplay and you base your story off that? Because I know being a screenwriter, there's you know probably 30 or 40 different versions of a screenplay. Obviously, there's the final production draft that is the, the one closest to what's on screen. Is that typically how you would work? Yeah, I've, I've done four of them and each studio does it a little differently. Mm. So, you know, the, I think the first time uh, the publisher sent me a Xerox of the script, the second time I think I had to access it on the studio's intraweb. Sure. Uh, the third time I had to access it, but I only had access for three days at a time and I had to request it again every three days. Uh, and they didn't tell me that. I panicked when I, <laughs> I couldn't get into it on the fourth day. Oh, interesting. And then uh, I think the last ones I just got it in a, a PDF or something. And they, they usually, you know, it is uh, uh, maybe not the final shooting script. A lot of them I could tell from the um, the headings that they were from different versions. It would say gold version, blue version, pink version. So I would know that it was cobbled together. And a couple times there'd be scenes repeated because I know maybe they got moved around and somebody just didn't notice that they were in two places. But in general, they've they've stuck fairly closely, you know, to the final movie when I finally see it. There's a lot of extra stuff that gets cut out. Uh, all four of them have been action movies. And I tell people that, you know, sometimes people will complain that there's no characterization in like Hollywood action movies. And I'm like, the four scripts I had, there was a ton of characterization. It's what they cut out. Yeah, <laughs> right. For all the action. Right, right. So, I mean, it's just, so there was a lot in there to, to work with. And it must be interesting to kind of... Um you know, read a scene that's basically just action and dialogue and to be in to integrate your, what you feel as the writer of the novelization, what the character is thinking or feeling. I would imagine that comes up uh, a few times during a, that process. Oh yeah. And the, the, and the script writers, different script writers, like you were saying, some will go uh, into more description of the, the setting and what a character's thinking. Others it's bare bones. Sometimes it's just that way in certain scenes. 
So yeah, there's a lot of room for you to try to interpret. And it's kind of intimidating in a way because you're like, whatever you do, it's not going to be the final film. Right. And so there'll be some cognitive dissonance for readers who might have seen the film. But, you know, that's your job is to go ahead and take this and flesh it out. Yeah. So I just, you know, I kind of look at it as like a collaboration with people I'll never talk to. <laughs> right, right. So I even try to, to to use as much of their own language. Like if if somebody's using like a writing description, I'll see if I can't at least use some of the language in the way they did it too. Hmm. keep the voice of the script writers in there as well. Since, you know, it's, 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 it's their work first. So. Right. Right. Switching gears a little bit. I wanted to get into, uh, cause I know you teach creative writing uh, and mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about for writers who are listening, who are, that's narrow to short stories for sake of time for short story writers who are listening. I think one of the things that I've read that you kind of talk a little bit about the art of suspense, I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way and how to kind of build a compelling narrative because like for me, when I first started out, I was lucky that I had, you know, I had Laird Barron sort of giving me feedback and helping me through. I, I never took a, I'm self-taught and I never took a class or anything. But if you wouldn't mind just hitting on some, some things that you feel are important for writers to hear who are maybe just beginning to kind of start, you know, writing and trying and sending out short stories for, in hope of, of. Sure. First, you know, what you said about being self-taught, I, I think all writers are self-taught regardless you know, you get a little bit of feedback, you get a little bit of guidance, you might get a little direction, maybe your learning curves decreased if you take classes or whatever. But all you need to do is read a bunch and write a bunch and get feedback on your work, mm-hmm. you know, to improve as a writer. But for short stories, I usually tell like uh, students to maybe only have a couple characters, maybe have like one central idea, uh, make sure you have an emotional core to the story. So there's some kind of emotional connection of your main character to what's going on. Um, start as close to the end as you can. In a lot of ways, you can imagine your short story as the end of a larger story. But all you do is just write the the last scene, basically, of what you would imagine this larger story would be. Interesting. You're probably going to use like less description in a short story because there's only so much room. So uh, I had just, I think I read today on uh, on Twitter that there there was a a reader of uh, of slush. You know, the the first reader for stuff that comes in in a magazine. And he was like, it's his first time doing it. So he summed up like 14 things that he noticed. And one of them was, he said, a lot of stories started off with three pages of description. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tell students that even if they read a bunch, they've got like thousands upon thousands of hours more of visual media that they've probably consumed. And when you see like a TV show or a movie, that first image, you see all the details at once. But we can't do that. We only have one word at a time and people may read in three or four word chunks, but in general, it's sequential. You can't like show the sunset and have sound and have like the wind going across the plane and have the cowboy on the horse moving all at the exact same moment. And so when people sit down to, to write, they don't know how to put all that in there. And so they just pick a point, you know, the sun was high in the sky and then they just keep going until three pages later, they've created that image that they're used to stories beginning with. So you have to kind of get away from trying to replicate that, just that visual part. And uh, see what else would I tell people. It's important to, because people come to short stories, fiction writing at all from the visual medium, they often just do sound and movement when they write. They forget their smells, there's tastes, there's like physical sensations. They forget that. And because they usually watch it as a passive audience member where everything is fed to them, they uh, have a harder time imagining being like making their characters active and being inside their heads to let us know what they're thinking and feeling. Because, you know, other than voiceover, 
uh, you usually don't get any of that in visual media. Interesting you said about the senses, because that's one of the things I learned early, and I learned it by reading writers like Ralph Robert Moore and Laird Barron, which is the um, the visceral side of how you can describe the physicality of what's happening to a character. So that's something I've integrated into my work, which is I really want to make the reader feel what the character is feeling and not just describe what I'm seeing, but to your point exactly, what is, it, what is he hearing? What is he smelling? What is he physically feeling? So that's a really good that's a great point that I know I've built into my work and it's been very helpful. And so when you write a short story, do you, um, one of the big, I know with novels, it's a lot of the panther versus plotter questions with short stories. It's a little bit of a different thing because I don't think a lot of people create extensive outlines or beats summaries for their short stories. A lot of it is a little, short stories tend to be a little bit more from the seat of your pants sort of thing where you, for me, I have like a general idea. I know how it's going to end. I know who my characters are, but for the most part, I'm just going for it. You know, how do you, what is your process for writing short stories? Is it how much uh, thinking do you do ahead of time as far as the narrative? Do you always know where it's going? I, you know, I, I know a lot of people hate ambiguous endings in short stories. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the writer didn't really know how the story was going to end. I try and not do that personally, but I'm curious as to your process from the acorn of the idea to when you sit down to write it. You're right. I do outline novels more than I do short stories. Uh, uh, sometimes I may just jump into them. Uh, I usually have a core idea that I'm working with. Um, sometimes if it's, I know I have to do a short story, like I'm just, I mean, you know, I'm lucky enough to be at a point in my career where I often get asked to contribute to an anthology. And so then I just go to my, my idea list that I have on my phone and I'll pick two or three things. I found that if I take like um, three different ideas or bits that I have, I can usually put those together in a short story. I have a big list of titles that I just write down things that they could make cool titles. And sometimes I'll pick one of those to give me a feel for what the story might be. And then, you know, I, I spend some time just like living with it a little bit in my head because I do an awful lot of visualization of scenes and dialogue and things like that and kind of work it out in my head. Uh, some, somewhat consciously, somewhat subconsciously. And then I sit down to write, I may have a few ideas that I've jotted down about where it may go. Um, as I approach uh, a scene. It's like, it kind of starts to reveal itself to me. So I'll jot that stuff down. So it's almost like a, an outline just right before you, you write right. one little scene mm -hmm. or one little bit. And, you know, sometimes that works better than others. You know, sometimes it comes out pretty easily. Other times it's like quilting almost where you have all these different pieces and you're hoping that <laughs> it all looks pretty good by the time you right. stitch it together. And, uh, you know, like I tell students, your, your experience writing it will not reflect the, somebody's experience reading it. Uh, so it may have come out like it might have been torture to write it, but it could still read just fine. Yeah, that's a good point. Because that's one thing, you know, when you're writing something, sometimes it feels like, you know, like it comes out like a sneeze, like, you know, 10,000 words just blow, you know, blow out of your head and you're just don't know how it happened. But sometimes it's like every word is like lifting you know, an anvil, right? And you feel like it's so plodding and it's so slow, you know, because you're maybe overthinking every word or every sentence or, or, or struggling to get through a scene. But yeah, but for the reader, to your point, it's just like a blur. I think it's a good thing for writers to hear is like, just because it feels slow when you're writing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to read slow. It's just, it's two very different ways of uh, experiencing the same, the same thing. So I know we only have a few minutes left, but I want to talk very quickly about marketing. Obviously, the way folks market themselves in 2020 is very different than the way they were doing it in the year 2000. Um, but what are some marketing tips you would give to new writers, you know, in today's day and age who maybe handful of, have a handful of short stories? Maybe they've even published a couple. 
maybe they're considering putting together a collection or maybe they even have a collection out from an indie press. So let's say they have a small amount of product, you know, that they were looking to create more awareness for. What are some marketing tips that you could give to writers who are in that kind of situation? Yeah, I think about this a lot. I, I, one of the classes I teach at my college is writing to publish. So I think about, you know, what, what are people doing right now? And I, you know, spend a lot of time on social media watching that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that occurs to me is since so many people can write now, I mean, you know, I started, I wrote my first novel on a typewriter because PCs hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. They came out like just a couple months after I did that. So back then you had to be pretty dedicated to write a book and then, you know, revise it. But once PCs came along, uh, it encouraged people to write a lot. And a lot more people started writing. So that's a wonderful thing, but it also just means there's a lot more stuff out there. And like we were talking earlier about the ease of publishing, even more stuff that's out there. So I think that if you can, I think one of the things you should do is try to think from the beginning, what makes you different? What makes your stuff different? A lot of what editors and agents talk about is they talk about looking for something that has a voice. And they just mean something that's different, something that sounds like itself. Maybe not wildly different because you know how it is with marketing. They want something similar, but not that similar. You know, so they they, they might want a, a high fantasy. They just don't want it to be exactly like, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, but not too far away from Game of Thrones. So, and, and nobody knows what that is because if they did, everybody would be producing it and everybody would be rich. <laughs> right. But I think if you can find, you know, what what it is that makes your stuff different, because that gives you a marketing hook. Because otherwise, your hook is just, here's another horror book. And it's a good horror book, uh, I swear. And you can do all kinds of other stuff to try to promote awareness of it, but it doesn't stick out. So, I mean, right. it could be uh, it could be anything that might get attention. It could be just, you know, you're a really skilled writer and your sentences sing, or it could be your ideas are just mind-blowing. Um, or it could be it's funny, uh, even though it's also gross. <laughs> so it's like humorous splatterpunk, something. And even you don't have to worry about a branding statement to start out because maybe you'll shift what you do as you go. But I think if you can or if you can just at least do it for each project to kind of figure out what makes this project different and use that as a way. So regardless of whether you're doing social media, which you should these days, whether you have a blog, whether you have a YouTube channel, whether you have a newsletter, you know, I have all those things. Those things are great, but they're venues. You have to have a message to go through those venues somehow. I see a lot of people try to talk themselves up too. Like, you know, I'm the next Stephen King. I see that on Facebook more than Twitter, but I do see that. It's yeah, like, that's no, not a not. good, you're that's not, not that's not a good, not a good way to go in. Right. And we already have a Stephen King. We don't need another one. Yeah. So, you know, finding some way to, and I think the best way then is talking about your work instead of you. Now, to be, be enthusiastic about your book. If you love your book, then, you know, you can make other people love your book. What is it that you love about it? And it, it helps if you in, in marketing, especially in social media, if people feel you're a real human being, that you're genuine about your love for what you're doing, that you're not just trying to sell your book 24-7. You know, making a good network where you you, you work with other writers, you, you, you work to promote them, being a good literary citizen, I think that really helps because then you have a lot of allies to help promote your own stuff too. And they do it because they like you and they like your work. So I guess those are like the, just in terms of like what people are doing right now, uh, in terms of marketing, I think those principles are probably the most important, more important than exactly which social media thing you use or exactly how often you post or anything like that. Because right, there is that element of, okay, well, here's all the, here's the 50 ways you can promote yourself, but what are you promoting? You know what I mean? And that's, I think, to your point, have an interesting 
hook or have an interesting take or have something that maybe grabs people's attention. But I think also it's very important to be real. I, I agree with that hundred percent. I think sometimes you'll see somebody promoting something and, and you just get a sense that they're, they're just there to promote themselves. They're not there to interact or to, to your point, be a good literary citizen. And I think that's such a big part of it. I, I know conventions, you mentioned it, obviously, slowly but surely, I think we're making our way back to human interaction. Um, you and I just talked before we came on about hopefully seeing each other in Denver for StokerCon. And that was such an invaluable thing for me was meeting other writers and talking to other writers. And you mentioned it rare at, right at the beginning about the message board that you would hang out mm-hmm. at and listen. I think so much of it is listening more than you're talking a lot sometimes, especially if you're a new writer pay attention to what other writers are saying and pay attention to what other writers are doing. And I think that goes a long way. And and then like you said, have a message, which I think is such an interesting point. So before we go, we're a little over, but I want to get to this is I wanted to talk to you about your writing guide, writing in the dark. So you, can you describe it for people who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, it's a, it's a book about, you know, how to write horror. I took everything that I'd learned over the course of 30 years or so of writing and and also just a lifetime of being a horror fan to talk about, you know, the kind of book I wish I would have had when I was starting out writing. Uh, And I tried to make it really accessible and uh, it's, you know, it has really practical things to do. There are exercises in it as well. Um, I also, just as a a writing teacher, I think people should get as many different opinions, many different viewpoints about writing as possible. So I made sure to to have just small little snippets from professional writers and editors and agents and such where they're talking about what makes a good horror story. And people really seem to have liked that a lot. I think I have a snippet in that book. um, So that's called Writing in the Dark. So that's a great resource to pick Mm -hmm. up. And then what other one or two other titles you would throw on to that for people who that you think are effective and helpful for, for new writers? Well, I'm going to have a follow-up called uh, the writing in the dark, the workbook that's going to come out. And right now I think late May it's filled just with exercises and it also has, you know, exercises from other writers as well. I was surprised that so many people like the exercises so much from writing in the dark. So I thought that'd make a hmm. good follow-up. Um, other writing books is a really good one. I'll, off the top of my head, I can't remember the writer, but it's called uh, Plot Versus Character. And it's about this because there's kind of a divide between like literary writers and you can have literary writers in any genre, too. But, you know, they tend to focus on character and language more than they do plot. They feel plots like an artificial shaping of events that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. And then for people that like, you know, entertainment based fiction, they tend to like what happens next more than they like any kind of, you know, detailed stuff about character. And they sometimes kind of clash. And the writer's point is that both things are important and you should, all writers should try to find a balanced way uh, to work toward that. And it's the only book I've ever seen that does that. So I think that one's good. Um, Carl Iglesias has a book called Writing for Emotional Impact, which I think might focus on screenwriting, but it's good for any writers. And a lot of people don't think about that because most people I think read to be moved emotionally on some level. And I think it's an important thing to try to do with any fiction that you do. I don't care whether it's just an action adventure movie or it's like, you know, a really detailed character study. I think it should touch people emotionally somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think I always recommend that book to people. And then I recommend anything by Eric Maisel, M-A-I-S-E-L, because he's a psychologist that works with creative people. And he has a number of books that deal with all the stuff you never hear about dealing with the mental and emotional aspects and challenges of being a creative person. 
And so I always recommend him because you don't usually get that kind of stuff in writing guides and it's pretty important. Yeah. I think there's a book called um, Touched by Fire, which talks a lot about the creative personality and how, how, you know, so often that creative personality struggles with anxiety and depression and things like that. But um, it's an interesting study in the psychological makeup of a, you know, of a creative person or a writer or an artist or whatever. So I was actually making those, making notes as you were talking. So I don't, I'm not familiar with any of those. So I'm going to definitely look them up. Well, Tim, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the dark word and thank you so much and best of luck with uh, the future releases of the, the, the workbook. And what do you have um, coming up on the creative side, what what releases do you have that you can plug uh, for for people who want to pick up some of your your upcoming work? Yeah, like I said earlier, I've got a my next tie-ins called uh, uh, Zombie Side Invader is the you know brand of the game, and the specific novel is called Planet Havoc. So if you like uh, space marines fighting alien zombies on a on a faraway planet, who doesn't? Who doesn't exactly? Like that? And then I got another horror novel from Flame Tree Press coming out in July called We Rise Again, and that's a ghost apocalypse instead of a zombie apocalypse. Ghosts appear all over the world and just start killing people. Nice. And uh, it was a lot of fun to write. That sounds like a blast. Uh, All right. Well, Tim, again, thanks so much. And I appreciate your time. And we will uh, talk to you soon. And if nothing else, we'll see you in Denver. Well, sounds great. All right, sir. Take care. You too. Bye now. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.